Equity Everywhere is an eight-part series hosted by MindRocket Media Group and Anderson Learning President and CEO, Tom Jackson. Joined weekly by a variety of K-12 practitioners and experts, they engage in critical, meaningful, comprehensive conversations about equity in education. What are the key factors, variables, objectives, and considerations for the education system to acknowledge and address? Together, podcast participants will highlight, amplify, and refine best practices and solutions for ensuring education equity everywhere. In this episode, Edison Learning President and CEO Tom Jackson will be discussing podcast episodes one through eight and how the podcast has helped reshape his ideas on equity, the strengths of each guest, and what we should look forward to in the future episodes. Tom, let's begin with your definition of equity. I know we previously discussed how you've stated equity is more about class than race. I look at equity in three pillars, scholastic equity, structural equity, and institutional equity. Yeah, I'll tell you, Christy, you know, after doing the the podcast that we've done, it's real clear to me that we are spot on with the way that we see equity. I, I think what happens and what the podcast has helped me understand is that there seems to be this confusion between equality and equity. Equality is, fun- is fundamentally a concept of a level playing field around certain rights and almost always ends up with being a conversation about protected classes, right? You know, minorities, uh, women, you know, and gender. Whereas equity, in my mind, is a broader discussion. You know, equity, frankly, even within the same race, you can have inequities in education. So equity is a much broader discussion. And that's why we look at it from the perspective of scholastic, structural, and institutional equity. Okay. Mm -hmm. Scholastic equity is really about getting people to focus on the needs of the students, regardless of their protected class but looking at the socioeconomic situations that drive the inequities in in, in academic performance. Do they have certified teachers? Are they using updated resources? Do Do the teachers really understand how to address the specific needs of that specific student given their socioeconomic circumstances? Resources, Um, When you look at structural equity, what you're really driving down to is the necessary resources to for that student to succeed. So if you notice, it's a very equity is a very student centered conversation. Mm -hmm. And then institutional goes institutional um, equity really goes to those long standing things of which side of the railroad tracks do you live on. Right. And um, a really good example of that is in, in, in my hometown of Hamilton, Ohio, in the 1950s and 1960s, what they did was um, they decided there was a a single high school at which all students, regardless of race and economic circumstances, went to that single high school. Then they decided that what they wanted to do was they wanted to build a new high school. The original plan was one new high school so that everybody would have state-of-the-art resources. Well, uh, the people on the west side of town decided that they were paying more in taxes than the people on the east side of town. Mm-hmm. So they wanted their own high school, right? So black, brown, and poor white kids got 
one high school on the east side of town and the kids on the other side who were wealthy and upper middle class got another. But here's the interesting thing, right? The interesting thing is that the buildings were identical. So they ended up spending twice as much to separate these two populations, and they were separated more on class than on race. And I, I think when we have conversations, I'm saying I'm not saying we shouldn't have conversations of quality, but what I am saying is that we absolutely need to go further and have the equity conversation. And I think the class conversation generally in our country is the true third rail conversation. Wow, thank you. I appreciate that. Let's take this all the way back to episode one. We discussed your story and the quest towards equity everywhere to find it. Tom, how has your history led you through this podcast? And are there any episodes where you felt really connected to the issues that you faced in education? Wow, there were a number of them that I felt really connected. I think that um, our our conversation with Alex Madrigal, mm-hmm. you know, who was the principal of CG Bethel, was just an amazing conversation because it actually showed just how personal this conversation can be. He talked about particularly this nursing student who we launched a program to uh, to add a career technical education component, a nursing assistant class. Um, to our schools, right? And this particular student, she enrolled in the class so that she could care for her mother who was having a kidney transplant. And so when we uh, launched the, the, the career technical education component of our, of our schools, what we're really trying to focus on is making sure that our students, when they graduated, not only had the high school diploma, but were ready for the workforce. And what we did not understand um, and the, the real bonus we got was, was the fact that we had students who could tie that to what was personally happening in their lives and they could go out and make a, an immediate difference in their families and in their communities. I think that episode really helped me understand just how personal this conversation can get. I, a lot of times when we have equity versus equality conversations, we're having them on a macro level. And this really took it down to a hyper-micro level. Wow. I really appreciate you sharing that. Let's move on to episode two. We had our first guest, Dr. Greg Hutchins, superintendent of Alexandria Public Schools. In that episode, you and Dr. Hutchins discussed building institutional equity. What was the standout philosophy that spoke to you in that episode? Dr. Hutchins, what, what a what just an insightful guest. And what Dr. Hutchins really helped me understand is what I just talked about is the distinction between equality discussions and equity discussions. Because I think a lot of times when I say it's not just about race, I think that people think that I'm discounting race, right? And what I'm saying, I'm not saying race doesn't matter. Race does matter, uh, right? What I am saying is you shortchange the discussion if you stop there. And so what, you know, Dr. Hutchins helped me to see as I frame this discussion, I need to frame it understanding that people will confuse equality and equity. One of the things that he, he talked about um, in terms of institutional equity were some of the changes he was trying to make it within, you know, the school district and the pushback he got as he was trying to not, he wasn't doing anything necessarily innovative. But what he was really doing was trying to make sure 
that there were that the resources uh, from an institutional equity perspective that they were available across the board regardless of the zip code in the community. And the thing he he sort of pushed on and harked on is the same thing that um, the um, uh, equity and innovation officer from uh, Washington, and that is that that as superintendents you often have an op- have a a tendency to to respond to and to develop strategies around the vocal minority. Mm-hmm. You know, um, those parents who are really really active, you know, and almost end up shaping shaping policy, and therefore their resources end up on it, it, to use my Hamilton uh, 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 metaphor, they end up on the west side of town uh, because those parents are more vocal, right? And the east, not the east, gets you know gets shorter resources, ends up with more dilapidated buildings, ends up with outdated curriculum, and, and all of that because those parents are working or otherwise not as engaged as on the west side of town. So you know, he really helped to further that discussions are as to what are the, some of the factors that drive institutional inequity, and more importantly, how superintendents, they have to resist the urge to strategize around the vocal minority. So true. In episode three, we discussed rural equity with Holly. Since then, there have been a lot of conversations about infrastructure and rural communities in the political and education spheres. Tom, what is something that Holly discussed that you're still you still feel is being under-addressed in these overarching conversations surrounding equity in rural school districts? Well, it, you know, the conversation with Holly was was, uh, was also fantastic. I mean, look, over 75% of our country geographically is rural. And yet most of our conversations, you know, are around urban areas. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't have conversations about urban areas, but we really do have to address the inequity of resources in our rural uh, rural school districts. And so Holly manages a program that is um, largely online and really takes state-of-the-art educational resources like Edison Learning's e-courses and, and proprietary uh, learning management system and really takes those to uh, rural areas where they may not have access to AP courses or where they may not be able to accelerate their high school uh, or middle school experience, or, you know, they may need uh, specific, students may need specific interventions uh, that can be provided online, but can't, but the the school district itself doesn't have the resources. So Holly is approaching this whole question of scholastic equity and, and institutional equity from the perspective of providing an online solution uh, in in you know, end time on time online solution for kids and um, you know that's just a, an amazing effort and she's been doing that for well over a decade. And has Edison Learning partnered with any other learning programs that help assist rural schools? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, we we are our courses are in thirty four states across the country, and every day we're working with more than you know. 70,000 students um, across the country, um, many of whom are in rural areas. And some of uh, the students are partners. Uh, we're partnered with, uh, with Holly uh, to address. The opportunities there are amazing. But what we do is we focus there on trying to make sure that students have access to rigorous accredited 
courses wherever they are and that they have access to highly qualified, certified teachers uh, to teach those courses and to provide the interventions that they need. And so we partner with schools and school districts in some part through CAIU and Kayola, and that's uh, that's Holly Brisky, mm-hmm. but in other instances directly uh, with those students. And, and Christy, one of the things we did about eight months ago is we recognized that there are parents who need to be able to who need to be able to afford uh, to provide those courses directly, whether they're doing homeschool or whether they've recognized that their their student has a gap that they feel like the school their their homeschool is not dealing with. So what we've now done is we've launched what we call Edison Learn Now, which allows parents to buy our accredited curriculum directly on a on a uh, on a direct basis, but really on a Netflix or subscription basis, drives down the cost, makes it much more affordable, and so parents can get engaged even at the curricular level to ensure that their students have the resources and accredited curriculum that they need. Oh, that's fantastic. One conversation that I found particularly interesting was episode four with Alex Madrigal, principal of CG Bethel High School concerning CTE. We've seen on social media that several students that you and Alex discuss have now graduated from CG Bethel and are going forward with their careers in their chosen fields. Tom, can you enlighten us on how it feels to see these students succeed? I got to tell you, Christy. So... I joined the company in 2007. At that point, I was general counsel. I believe it was the third day that I was with the company um, that I got an offer uh, to go become general counsel of a major financial services company. Um, It was, frankly, every general counsel's dream (laughs) job, right? And so I hung up the phone. Uh, really just like, you know, I wanted to take a moment to think about it, but it was one of those, you know, you didn't want to jump too quickly <laughs> situations, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, I don't want to show them that I'm really, really excited. I just wanted to sort of take a deep breath, right? The phone rang again, and it was a situation at one of our schools in Baltimore. And situation was that we had a couple of eighth graders. Uh, we were partnering with the Baltimore School District. We had a couple of eighth graders, girls who had gotten into a fight on the bus. They were applying the zero tolerance policy and they were going to expel the girls. Mm. And I got into what it was about. It's always about a boy. Eighth grade girls, right? It's always about a boy. (laughs) And I said, okay, I know you're calling me as a matter of protocol to sign off, but I can't sign off. Because if you do this to these girls, we know what's going to happen to them. If they get expelled in the eighth grade, we know they're not going to graduate from high school. We know what's most likely to happen to them in, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, public assistance and, and, and even potentially going to prison. Right. And so I said, you know, the right answer here is to teach them how to de- de-escalate, to give them detention. You know, or if it was severe enough, give them a, a you know, in-school suspension and get them back in, but keep them back in school. I hung up the phone from that conversation and I knew then exactly what I had to do. I knew then I had to de- decline the position that was being offered uh, by the financial services because I knew I was in the right place. And, um, and so I did that. Um, I, I declined it. Years later, those girls did graduate from high school. 
And not only did those girls graduate from high school, but our experience in Baltimore, mm-hmm. you know, think about it. I mean, it was right in Baltimore's urban core. You know, we increased reading proficiency 57 percent, math proficiency by 49 percent. When you get double digit mm-hmm. increases like that, that's like nirvana from an educator's perspective. Right. Overall, our performance in Baltimore was just extraordinary. But you're you're right there on the front line. And so I gave you that long story only because that's when you that's what this job does. I, I call it the hardest job you'll ever love. You know, it's hard because of all of the different things that you have to deal with, uh, from politics to equity and education to all of these kinds of things. But when you see these kids graduate, when you see them walk across the stage, you know, we will graduate this year our six thousand student as part of our alternative education program, students who folks have given up on, students who have given up on themselves. And over the course of our alternative education program, even before we added the CTE program, we're now at over 6,000 students that we will graduate. So, but each time I attend a graduation, CG Bethel has its next graduation tomorrow, for example. Each time I see these kids, I think, okay, yes, yeah, it is the hardest work, but it is work you'll love, you know, because of the difference that you make in these kids' lives. No, that's so true. I appreciate that. Edison Learning brings together best practices in instruction, developed over three decades of supporting schools with blended solutions designed by educators to meet students where they are and deliver the education they need and deserve. The guiding purpose behind all of Edison Learning's work is to ensure equitable access and opportunity for each and every learner. Learn more at www.edisonlearning.com. The the Shamari Jones episode concerning the Mm -hmm. rise of equity leadership positions is astounding. In that conversation, you gave school boards an excellent piece of advice about hiring prospective equity leaders. Tom, what should a school board of districts consider before hiring a director of equity? Well, before I answer that question, I do want to want to point out something mm-hmm. of that conversation, you know, because Shamari is in a very different district and it really does show that equity is all, at all levels. Shamari is actually in a high performing school district in Washington. Many of those students, you know, they have very high graduation rates very high SAT um, and ACT test scores. Many of them go on to go to best of the California schools, including Stanford. But the real interesting thing there is you've got this this equity conversation that's going on between students who are Asian and students who are Caucasian, you know, and very small numbers of students who are African-American and Latino. And the equity conversation around scholastic equity and around uh, institutional equity. Those kinds of conversations are very, very different, but they're still happening in a school district. So I think the most important advice that we gave, um, Shamari and I both gave, is really the advice of context and support. Making sure uh, that um, when you have an equity and innovation officer, that that person really does have uh, to understand the context in which he or she is taking the position and the context for what's going on in that school district, right? Mm-hmm. And then the support. 
without the support, they're just an empty glove. They come in and they make a, a ton of suggestions. But as Shamari even pointed out, when you're making those, those recommendations around how you ensure equity uh, in a high-performing school district, you still have some of the same parents, the vocal minority, who is trying to get all those resources for their students. And so the, the support of the board becomes pivotal in making in, in the in the success of that position, not just the support of the superintendent, because as you know, Christy, the average lifespan of a superintendent in an urban school district is about three and a half years. So they're spending the first year, you know, really sort of getting to know the district. The second year, trying to figure out and implement the plan. And the third year, they're looking for their next position. Your equity innovation officer can't be that transient. He or she needs to have the support to straddle successive administrations and to be able to ensure that there is a long-term strategy implemented in the school district. Oh, that's fantastic. And I know that with Edison's headline or tagline is equity everywhere. Are there any key examples that you have where Edison Learning has helped just touching on the diversity um, aspect and the diverse areas that your um, the team is in? Well, you, you know, we, you know, we've been in Chicago, we've been in in Baltimore, we've been in Philadelphia. All of those are big areas where you would expect us to have this conversation. But we also have been in partnered with uh, elementary schools in Peoria, Illinois, where you know that Peoria was serving a predominantly white middle class population, and we helped the schools to be named. You know, Illinois Spotlight Schools and Leadership Team Awards and all kinds of sort of blue ribbon awards as well for those schools and really sort of focusing on those three tiers that we talked about in equity, because it's frankly, those tiers have been part of the Edison learning story for the past 30 years since its beginning when we talked about a world class education for every child. And so Peoria, Illinois was one of those areas where um, you know, we we also um, you know we're able to be uh, to accomplish our objective with partnering with school districts, rural school districts um, that we work with it through Kaola. But in California, we worked with uh, San Jose Edison Academy. That was um, a a partnership in West Covina with the West Covina United School District of California, and there you know they had struggled with student achievement largely due to shifting demographics um, in a district that was had a very fast-growing Hispanic and Latino population. And uh, when we began working in that school, 71% of the students were reading below grade level. Oh, wow. um, and think about that. I mean, you know, seven out of 10 of the students reading below grade level. Four years later, school was one of the highest performing schools in the school district and was recognized as a California distinguished school and later was named the Blue Ribbon School. Wow. You know, what I have said, I think, consistently about Edison Learning is we've learned a lot about what works in schools and what doesn't work. You have the bruises to show it. But at the same time, one of the things that has been very consistent in our approach is that we have and we want to make sure that every student, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of all these other things, you know, and class, you know, regardless of this, their zip code, that every student has an opportunity to succeed. And that has just been the mantra, whether we call that a world-class education for every child, or whether we call that equity for everyone, everywhere, 
it really is the same thing and it stretches out over our 30 plus year history. Oh, wow. That is fantastic. and so impressive. On to our more recent conversation that's probably applicable now as school leaders plan for the 2022-2023 school year. Is your discussion with Dr. Joshua Starr concerning equity leadership? Tom, if you were a superintendent of schools right now, what's one piece of advice you would take from that conversation? Read Dr. Starr's book. (laughs) (laughs) I was was just impressed with uh, the research that he's done um, as a former superintendent and the practical advice that that he gives um, sort of, you know, war worn and weary advice uh, that he gives um, he gives superintendents and it really does connect back to our first conversation with Dr. Hutchins when he talked about making sure that you're not just uh, speaking to the vocal minority you know what he does what he did as a superintendent that he thought most effective is that he would actually have small group discussions at the homes and in the neighborhoods uh, of the district that he served, you know, and that's how he ensured that he wasn't just talking to the vocal minority. There's this old phrase, Lincoln walked among the troops. I think superintendents have to emulate that, mm-hmm. you know, that if they stay within the four walls of the district offices, the only folks who are going to come to them are going to be the vocal minority. But if they get out into the communities that they serve, they can understand the context in which they're serving and they can broaden their lens to make sure that they're serving every community and every student within that community and that they're hearing from a broader array of parents. So I think the the most effective advice that I would give is the advice that he gave. um, And that was get out from, from those pearly walls, make time to get out and get into the community and have those small group town hall meetings, coffees, whatever you want to call them in the homes and in the neighborhoods of the, of the, of the, the students that you serve, and you'll learn a lot about what what you need to, what programs you need to put in place and how you need to move the needle for achievement. No, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Also, your conversation with Dr. Jim Rickenbaum concerning personalized learning was enlightening, particularly the amount of data in education theory that Dr. Rickenbaum has accumulated in his book in a lifetime as an educator. Tom, how can we bring some of these theories, such as age-based learning and career-centric education into today's classrooms? The first thing I would say is it comes to resources. We are finding, Christy, more and more the inequity of, of, um, of online resources um, across our country. And I really like what the administration recently did when, when they freed up through the FCC a ton of uh, ESSER dollars to be used uh, in communities that are not connected to the internet. The pandemic really has accelerated what I thought was going to happen in education anyway. We've got native online learners, a generation of native online learners. And that generation of native online learners is only gonna get bigger and grow older and they expect to be able to, to access and will be expected to access various curricula throughout their lives their lifespan, whether it's learning, you know, fractions um, in the fifth and sixth grade um, or calculus uh, in the uh, in the 10th grade or, you know, learning a new trade or skill post-graduation. Kids are going to be learning. 
So now the question is really what the what? What what tools are they going to have to be able to access this this curricula? And how do we make sure that the curricula really does address where they are at any particular time? So what we talked about, Dr. Rickenbach and I, is we talked about this concept of stage, not age, right? Because what technology allows us to do, assuming we all have access to it, what technology allows us to do is to get out of this mass production that says you are, you know, five years old, six years, six years old in the first grade. And so you're only going to learn this, you know, and now we're going to push you, push you on the assembly line. And now you're in the second grade. And now we're going to introduce you to that. Right. Well, everybody learns many different things at different rates and technology allows us to adjust for that. And so, you know, you have those students who are inherently innately enumerate. So they're able to learn arithmetic and mathematics at a faster speed. Why wouldn't we then allow them to do so? Okay. Um, you know, my, my, uh, my daughters were reading, you know, full books in kindergarten. But when they went to kindergarten, the teacher was like, well, they're not paying attention when we walk through um, our alphabet. I said, of course not. <laughs> because they're reading. We have to get to this concept of stage, not age learning which technology allows us to do to evaluate where that student is, where their strengths and where their weaknesses are, and then to adjust the sequencing and scope and sequence and even the curriculum itself for where that student is. You know, the curriculum is made for the student, not the student for the curriculum, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's what what age-based learning allows us to do uh, through through today's technology. And I know that you did touch on just with reading and and students that are already aware of our languages. Do you have any examples where you've had to partner or helped uh, other school districts that handle uh, people with different backgrounds that maybe English isn't their first language? Wow. The best example I can give you there is our partnership in uh, in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Um, That was just that was an amazing partnership because what, what most people don't understand is that Hawaii is it's a unified school district, very much like uh, Florida. In that instance, is, uh, there are over 20 different languages that are spoken uh, in, um, in that unified school district. We were able to, uh, notwithstanding that, um, we were able to, to focus on uh, providing what we call our achievement framework. Um, which you know has you know five domains, the most important of which is around teaching and learning, as you might expect. Um, but we were much we were able to help them to um, increase um, reading scores, if I remember correctly, by about twenty seven percent and math by about thirty percent. And think about that, still dealing with twenty different languages, you know, and in some instances, our folks had to travel by, um, I won't say canoe, but by boat <laughs> to get to some of the schools uh, that existed there to ensure that the that there was fidelity, you know, to the model across the district. Uh, but there again, we still achieved double digit increases, you know, the nirvana in education, right? Um, double digit increases in reading and math. And, 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 and why do I focus on reading and math? Reading and math, those reading and math scores, we know if you drive reading and math scores, you drive everything else throughout the curriculum. You're exactly correct about that. 
Finally, I did want to mention here in our most recent episode with Dr. Gladys Cruz. In that conversation, you and Dr. Cruz discussed her new role as the 2022-23 president-elect of AASA and how ELL fits into an overall equity-driven agenda. Tom, what's one thing from that conversation that stuck out for you? Dr. Cruz is a powerhouse. (laughs) Um, And AASA is very, very blessed to have her in the leadership position. She gets it. She really gets this conversation of equity, you know, and um, and I, I just think she's going to be fantastic in that position. I think she's going to be she's going to advance the discussion across superintendents. Um, and um, and she was just she was just fantastic. I, I think the her own personal story is what she brings to this discussion. She was an exceptional student, but because, um, you know, English was not her first language. You know, she was perceived in a particular way, you know, and uh, and so it was through the efforts of uh, of a mentor, someone who actually said, well, no, wait a minute. She needs to learn the language, but she is an exceptional student. You know, that really gave her the opportunity to demonstrate that she could could succeed. And, I, and so what she helped us understand is this this disconnect that is um the sort of structural uh, for us in that just because someone speaks a different language, whether it's Spanish, whether it's uh, Polish, whether it's German, whether it's Hungarian, sometimes what pe- what we do in our school system is we immediately assume because English is their second language that they don't have the, the comprehension and cognitive reasoning. We mm-hmm. confuse language with those skills. and But she's walking testimony that what superintendents have to do is they have to rethink their ELL programs to ensure that we have equity, you know, from the perspective of of how we deal with ELL students. I think she's going to be fantastic in in shaping that conversation. That sounds so true. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And thank you, Tom, so much for joining us today. We look forward to future conversations on equity everywhere. Thank you all for your time and for sharing your vision and personal stories. It is individuals like you that help make the little shifts that impact needed change in the education community. If you or anyone has ideas or thoughts on this podcast, please join the discussion on Twitter at Edison Learning and reference the hashtag Equity Everywhere. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on our next episode of Equity Everywhere.